Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. And if I don't take long enough on this passage, don't you worry about it. There'll be an outline that you can look at or we'll come back to it later. I just want us to get these five verses and be excited about them to come to the Lord's table. The Lord chose this. Brethren, I'm 60. I should know the Bible. But John 12, 24 is like a new verse to me. I knew it was there. And if he'd have started me, I probably could have quoted some of it. Just because it's, it's, odd, it's an odd verse that your mind does pick up on when you read the chapter. But to embrace all that's there and to see its context is what I want to share with you for a few minutes. For us to understand one aspect of remembering the Lord's death till he comes for us. Let me read verses 20 through 24. Five verses. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Certain Greeks. Do you know what you are? A certain Greek. Because Greek in the New Testament was used for a synonym for Gentiles. It's Jews and Greeks that are the distinction often throughout the New Testament. There were certain Greeks. Now we assume these were Gentile Greeks. What about a Jew that had been dispersed and grew up in Greece? Could they be called Greeks? Yes. They would be Hellenized Jews. But the word here, and I, oh, I'm not even going to do it. Nope. You know what the word is. It's Greek. It's Greeks, and I'm going to leave it at that. There's a Greek word behind the word Greeks, but I'm not even going to tell you about it. It's not worth knowing. Let's reason it, let's reason it this way with an English Bible. There appears some reluctance by Andrew and Philip to introduce them to Jesus. If these would have been Jews coming back all the way from Greece to observe the Passover, there would have been no reluctance at all. Bethsaida is identified long before established by John in this gospel in chapter 1 as the town of Philip, already established. So why is it being repeated? Back to that in a moment. They came up to worship which Gentile proselytes could do, and the book of Acts tells us many occasions of them doing. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He was in Jerusalem for to worship. Greeks were a synonym for Gentiles among Jews and in the Bible. The results of our Lord's death, his, our Lord's response to these Greeks could hardly be 
the much fruit of verse 24 if they were just Jews. Are you with me on those different ways that we can prove it from our English Bibles? Forget that I even suggested the other way. Sometimes there's just a little curiosity. And it's not worth hearing about. Because I love our English Bibles. And if we'll just read them and trust them. And I want you to see these five verses together. Among them that came up to worship at the feast. We read in the last three verses of John chapter 11. That people from the countryside. Which would include Galilee. Were coming up to Jerusalem. They were coming up in altitude. They were not coming up on a map. They were coming down on a map. Down south. But up in altitude. And they were coming from the countryside of Galilee included. The, there, were, there were proselytes to the Jewish monotheistic faith in Jehovah, according to Moses. There were Greeks that God had touched enough that they wanted to worship in synagogues, and they would come to the temple, and they weren't given full rights. There was the court of the Gentiles, Gentile proselytes. Some of them would be circumcised, some would not be, but they knew there was only one God, and they knew the, the only God in the, in the world, the universe, was Jehovah, as Moses taught them. And so they wanted to participate, and so they would come. And the Bible tells us about them. Bethsaida of Galilee is mentioned, and it's, it's, re, it's a repetition that John already gave us in John chapter 1. These certain Greeks had to inquire around and seek out an apostle of Jesus of Nazareth. They were likely Syrophoenicians. It doesn't say that here. It tells us elsewhere that Syrophoenicians came after Jesus. Remember the Canaanite woman that was called a Syrophoenician? Syrophoenician is not a complicated word. It's Syria and Phoenicia together because they were, they were next to each other, and that was next to Galilee. Are you, are you with me now? And the Bible tells us about those. There were people there that trusted the Lord. Remember that woman that came and, and begged the Lord for mercy and touched his garment and so forth and so on, and the Lord healed and so let's just forget about that for right now. We understand them to be Gentiles, called Greeks, like the New Testament does. And for that reason, Andrew and Philip were a little reluctant. Philip hears about it first, and he doesn't want to tell Jesus. He wants to go tell Andrew because the apostles had been told to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they've got this situation now around the Passover of these Gentiles, these Greeks, Asking, sir, we would see Jesus. I love that. The apostle didn't really mean that much to them. They didn't say we would see Peter, the first pope. We would see Jesus. They didn't say we would see Mary. We would see Jesus. This is how we want to be. It's all about him, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there were some of us, our cousins, a few times removed, that came to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 20. And they came to Philip, and the Bible tells us that Philip was of Bethsaida of Galilee, which is just a strange way to put it in here, since we already know that about Philip, unless they are from that vicinity where the Jews and the Gentiles were not removed very far. And desired him, we would see Jesus. There is good cause for it. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 10 tells us this is the effect of our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem, the one that we just read about. And by the way, someone asked me at break time 
about the palm branches. And I told you that if you go look up Judean coins, you will see palm trees. And there are other historical reasons to understand that palm trees were associated with Judea and victory and peace. Where else are they mentioned in the Bible other than 1st and 2nd Maccabees? And that's other information that you don't need to know. But they are mentioned there as a custom among the Jews to use palm branches. Where else? Revelation 7-9 about the multitude that no man can number that palm branches were in heaven for the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you want another Bible reference, it's even there symbolically for honor to our king. Back to verse 21. I want to share this with you from Matthew 21:20. What was the effect of Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem on the city's population? Matthew 21:10 puts it this way. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this? What is going on? That crowd just coronated him, basically, without a crown, as the Messiah and the King of Israel coming in the name of the Lord. They assigned a messianic promise to him. Who is this? And brethren, we know him. We know him. And we come here every Sunday that we might see Jesus. Thursday night, if you want to pray with me, It'll be for the spiritual trait in our church, our families, our homes, our marriages, and our soon-to-be marriages. It's all about Him. We can have a whole lot of romance and a whole lot of Him. And not in that order. Lord, we want more of you in our church and in our homes. Back to John chapter 12. The whole city was moved. Who is this? It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was beginning to be glorified by His Father. Remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees told him, do you hear what they're saying? You better tell them to be quiet because they're blaspheming by the things they're assigning to you. And he said, if they were to be silent, the rocks would cry out. Who is this that was being glorified? Verse 22. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus had told them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only in Matthew 10 and in Matthew 15. Philip and Andrew were of the same city of Bethsaida, which we had already learned back in John chapter 1. Now the two of them come together as if they're just questioning and getting their courage up to tell the Lord, there are some Gentiles that want to see you. The Gentiles were idol-worshiping pagans, but not these. You know, there's some change in them. We're not told how much it was curiosity and how much it was conviction. We're not told. But we do have a wonderful answer. And it includes us in the answer. And we want to be in these three verses ourselves. We want to be Gentiles that though he was not of our flesh and our lineage, we're not from Abraham. We want to see Jesus and emphasize him in our church and in every part of our lives. Who is this? We know him. He knows us. He is in this room by his spirit. He is walking among his golden candlesticks and he's holding his stars in his right hand. He's with us and we're going to celebrate him. We know who he is. We know his brother's names. We know his sister's names. We know his biological father. 
We know his legal father. We know his biological mother. We know everything about him. We know how long he lived. We know when he died. We know how he died. We know why he died. Who is this? It's our Lord and Savior. Gentiles asking. And there wasn't any hope for them. They were outside the commonwealth of Israel, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Far off and without hope and without God in the world. That's our ancestors. What did the Lord say? Get them away from me. The dogs shouldn't eat the bread prepared for the children. He has used words like that before. Did he use that here? No. In that context of Gentiles asking to see Jesus and apostles being uncertain about that relationship, Jesus answers this way. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come. Now, brethren, do not get hung up on 60 minutes being an hour. This is not talking about 60 minutes. The appointed time has come. When we refer to the hour of one's death, we don't mean the 60 minutes around their last breath. We mean the appointed time, the the end time of their death. And that's what Jesus meant here. The hour is come. Oh, There's more in John chapter 12, like now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. There are huge events coming. But Jesus says right here, the hour is come. The end is approaching. I am at the brink of the Son of Man being glorified. He was glorified on his way coming into Jerusalem by that crowd. And if that crowd had not done it, the rocks would have done it. The ass's colt was most willing to be stolen, borrowed, whatever words you want to use, and ridden for the first time. Everything was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and giving him some tokens from his father before he would be stripped naked and mocked and tortured and die on the cross for us. There is a loving father in heaven that loved his son. And while he had to turn his back on him because of our sins, he was not turning his back on him by his entrance into Jerusalem. He brought an inaugurational ceremony into that city. Jesus answered them. The context is Andrew and Philip informing our Lord that certain Greeks or Gentiles sought him. They were apparently nervous and should have been, of the situation due to Jewish hostility toward Gentiles. These Greeks were Gentiles. I want to go over that because I don't want you to pull 23 and 24 out of its context since it's Jesus answering a particular situation involving our ancestors. The hour has come. And I don't need to give you all the references about the hour. Jesus told the Jews, now is your hour. You know, you have your appointed time of being able to crucify me. But it's limited, it's appointed by God's predestinating purpose. And then it will be over. And then it will be my time. And which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate King of kings and Lord of lords. That's my Jesus. Who is he? The blessed and only potentate which in his times he shall show it. And as men prayed enthusiastically in the back room this morning, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess 
that that Jesus is Lord. That the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus answered them saying, He's got two Gentiles in front of him. He's got some Gentiles, certain Greeks. The apostles are reluctant. Jesus is not reluctant because Jesus sees a transcendent event just a few years off of the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, preached in the world, and Gentiles believing it. Jesus could see that. The apostles couldn't see it yet. The apostles don't see it until Acts chapter 10. They don't even see it on the day of Pentecost. They're still messed up about Israel. Remember how the Lord had to deal with Peter in Acts chapter 10 in order to go to the house of Cornelius. Jesus sees that because that's the context. We are slaves to context. 23 and 24 are not to be pulled out, memorized, put up on a wall plaque unless you know what they're there for. And I'm trying to share that with you right now. Gentiles came to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew took their time getting them to him because of reluctance, because they had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it would continue that way until Acts 10. Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, his apostles, the 11 that were left, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Like Malaysia. Or the Piedmonts of the Carolinas. Thank you, Lord. We often, when we look at this 23rd verse, and it says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, wait a minute. The miracles that he did, the birth that he had by a virgin... Hasn't he been glorified? Oh, just a little. The hour is coming for a whole lot more glory to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to be just the king of the Jews. He's going to be the blessed and only potentate of the Gentiles as well. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. We often think of our Lord's trial and crucifixion in gory details, but we also need to remember its glorious results. And we want to do both as we remember his death till he comes because that 24th verse about seeds and much fruit hinges on the context. Right here, this 23rd verse about the glory of Jesus Christ. The enemies of Jesus thought they had humiliated and destroyed him forever. Wrong. Not even close. He knew the evil aspects of his crucifixion, and it troubled him in spirit, as we will read in verse 27, right here in context. The the dread of the cross. He had a human nature, and he knew it was going to be difficult. And he asked his father if there was any other means that he could redeem the children of God. Could he have that cup instead? But Jesus also knew that by his death and what would follow, it would glorify him. Look at, just flip over to chapter 13 for me to give you an example. Jesus has just identified Judas Iscariot. It's the next chapter we'll be studying. 
And he identifies Judas, and Judas leaves in verse 30. But look at verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, when Judas Iscariot left, and it was now Jesus and his eleven, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Jesus knew. Can you imagine sitting there at the table fully aware that Judas had left to go get the Pharisees and to bring a mob into Gethsemane to take him captive to put him on the cross? But the end result is going to be God glorifying me. And God did glorify him. There was an earthquake. The veil of the temple rent from top to bottom. The sun was darkened for hours so that the centurion in charge of the crucifixion cried out, truly, this man was the son of God. He was glorified. I just want to, Jesus saw the glory that was coming because of his death. His prayer to his father, some of you love John chapter 17, if you love it, then you know in the first five verses, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. This reward of, of glory from God for dying had been prophesied before. Isaiah 53, some of you read it last evening. Therefore, it says in verse 12, God shall divide him a portion with the strong because he poured himself out unto death. There was rewards coming for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2, that we're very familiar with. For the joy that was set before him, it doesn't say glory, it says joy. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame of the cross. There are other references in Isaiah. And young people, I hope you'll remember the little hint about Isaiah that I gave you at the youth meeting, that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah and 66 books in our Bible, and the difference between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40 is fantastic. 1 through 39 is very different from 40 through 66. But if you go into chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, like 49, like 55, like 60, you're going to read about God glorifying his servant. You won't find anything like that in 1 through 39. You'll get a random verse here or there, like to us a child is given and to us a son is given, a child is born. Random verses, but not contexts of the New Testament gospel era of Jesus Christ in quite the same way. But in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 60, I'm not turning you there. Did you read Luke 24 last evening? From verses 13 through 27, those two on the road to Emmaus are bewildered and they're disappointed and they're sorrowful because Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had trusted to be the Messiah, had been killed. And now they had just heard rumors that he might be alive and they were all confused. And Jesus started opening the scriptures to them and explained to them the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself and their hearts burned within him, within them as he opened up prophecies about himself and the, gl- and the glory that should follow. Here are his words from the last verse of that section I gave you to read. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and 
to enter into his glory. For what Jesus did on the cross, he was crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm 8. And so Jesus is referring to his impending death right here a few, day, a, a few days, a few hours before he died. This is the great mystery of godliness. Jesus is seeing it. He was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. They came down and opened that tomb for him, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. Jesus sees it. And that's what he's giving them here in verse 23. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. To be king of Israel was not a large domain, was not a large kingdom. But to be king of Gentiles and Jews throughout the world, that was large. And that was the glory that was coming to Jesus Christ. The whole world was going to be at his feet. The prophecies from the Old Testament are numerous and they're glorious. Jesus saw their fulfillment. The apostles didn't see it yet. Thus the reluctance. And the Greeks didn't know it yet. But Jesus is hinting at what was to come. They could be fellow heirs and citizens of the same kingdom with the Jews. Right. So we come to the 24th verse. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. How will he be glorified? By his death. By his death only or by the effects of his death? By the effects of his death. Verily, verily, I say unto you. And my brothers, this is 25 times in the Gospel of John. It is once in this chapter. It is right here. That says something to me, and I wanted to say something to you. What he is about to say is wonderful truth. Verily, verily, what I'm about to say is absolute truth. I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus is about to lay a glorious truth on the apostles that they needed to embrace. First, he would die in Jerusalem, unlike all the other times he had escaped the Jews. Second, his death would result in much fruit, especially among Gentiles. We, we understand that by the context. Consider that the apostles had just witnessed a royal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. They had just, what in the world is going on? They've never talked to Jesus that way. They've never done this. The whole city's moved. Who is this? So they had just seen a rather royal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, but he's telling them, oh, something far bigger is on the horizon. And that is, I need to die to initiate and to activate this further glory that's going to come to me. I need to die. And so he uses an agricultural seed example and illustration for us. Are you still with me, Micaiah? I'm sorry I take so long to get to my verse. I'd have been happy to have started there at 8.15 this morning. Because that's really what I told the Lord. All I want is that 24th verse. And we don't need to take long on it. I just want you to understand it and embrace it and, and, and know that the Lord Jesus Christ being put in the ground gave you eternal life. Right, right. And you are part of the much fruit of a multitude that no man can number. That's right. And we have the Lord's Supper. We are told specifically 
For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus just declared his glorification in verse 23. And here he explained his glorification included his death. If we grasp both verses together, we can see the great glory that Jesus saw that was forecast in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And you can think about the words and shall be satisfied, but it goes farther than that. It says he shall see his seed and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus was going to be very prosperous by dying. Corn, except a corn of wheat. Have you ever picked up a corn of wheat? Yes, you have. You just didn't know it because corn has been ruined as a word in America because of some Indian stuff. Corn means kernel or seed. Other nations know it. Americans don't. So when it says a corn of wheat, it means a seed of wheat, a kernel of wheat. It doesn't mean, let's have some corn in the cob and watermelon. You know, that's something that we've invented and made popular because wheat is a greater grain and product in most nations than corn. We use corn a lot. You ought to read what the state of Iowa does. And for the last 20 years, they've been number one in the nation in the corn that they produce. But that's not what we're talking about. We want, we want to understand when it says except a corn of wheat, it means except a grain of wheat or a kernel of wheat, a seed of wheat. This is seed doctrine. Except a seed of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Now I've got an acorn up here. I've got an acorn. It's a little tiny thing. If we leave it in this bag and put it on the mantle, or we take it out of the bag and give it some fresh air, and put it on the mantle, what's going to happen to the acorn? Nothing is going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. What if it's left there a year? Two years. Nothing's going to happen. What if I make it warm? What if I take it to bed and let it go under my pillow? Is anything going to happen to it? Nope. What if I put it in cold water? Is anything going to happen to it? Nope. What does it need? Warmth and water. And that's what's down in the ground. And if you stick this little baby down the ground, and you can go online and watch time-lapsed video of it, you can watch an oak tree come into being. It's fascinating. I've never planted anything. And sorry for anybody that's disappointed in their pastor right now because his experience is so limited... I don't care. <laughs> I just love John 12, 24. Now, Leon Carnell gave me these a long time ago, and I've taken very good care of them. They are always at room temperature. They're comfortable. They've never whined or complained about the temperature in the room, but these little mustard seeds have never changed. He wanted me to know what mustard seeds look like because he, he knew my handicap. These are, they've never changed. I've had them for years. 
Look at our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a carpenter's son, legally understood in the city of Nazareth. But he said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Any plant, seed, is of no reproductive value if kept in storage or display. It just stays by itself, itself. There's nothing added. It just stays the same. A seed in a decorative display in a museum of natural science will stay unchanged. Large quantities of seed kept in the storage bin of a barn will also remain unchanged. We understand the word seed, or corn here, to indicate the harbinger of reproduction, something that's going to bring more into life. Something drastic must happen to a seed, or corn, here, for any reproduction to occur. The grain Jesus is talking about is wheat. And he means a kernel of that wheat just stays alone. But if you bury it, if you put it in the ground, if it, as Jesus' words are, fall into the ground and die, if it doesn't do that, it stays alone. If it does do that, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus had to die. Jesus came to die. Jesus was designed to die. Jesus' death produced us. Like a seed of wheat, Jesus died and was buried underground for fruit. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day. That is the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Like a seed of wheat, Jesus planned to die to save God's elect. Look at John 18 and verse 11, or I'll read it to you. 18, 11 of this same gospel. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. Peter has just tried to defend the Lord in Gethsemane. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Like a, What is a seed of wheat for? If you don't grind it and turn it into bread, what is it for? It is to put in the ground to get more. Jesus was planned to get more from his life through his death. Like a seed of wheat, Jesus was designed to die with a human body. So Hebrews 2.14 tells us he did not take on him the nature of angels because an angel can't die. It's a spirit. He took on him our nature so that he could die. He was designed to die. He planned to die. He did die and was buried. And his death was the means for many to be saved. As the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life, to give his life a ransom for many. The event that's described here in this 24th verse by symbolism and a metaphor and a comparison to the change in a seed is the glorious, glorious death of Jesus Christ for us. Fantastic. And it's especially for us Gentiles because of the context. This is for us. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. A seed put in the earth dies. It decomposes and changes greatly, and then it springs forth into new life. And you ought to watch it. I know, I'm behind. But you ought to watch it. Because of our video opportunities to see almost anything today, you can go see that seed as soon as it's put in the earth. And it's warm, 
and it's moist. The process of imbibition takes place. It imbibes, it pulls the water in. It swells itself. It bursts off its outer shell, and it goes to work. There, is, there are enzymes inside there. There's a metabolic process that starts. It's fabulous to read about it and then to watch it because we can watch it for the first time. We can see it so clearly. That little seed, a root comes out of it and goes down. And then after it gets down a little ways, pop, on the other side, out comes a shoot that goes for the surface. surface. And some kind people have taken seeds like that and put one beside the other, one upside down. Oh, I love this. I didn't send it to you. I messed up. Turn a seed upside down. Now it's roots around the top and the sprouts on the bottom. Do you think it's confused? As Brother Jim wanted to remind me, how many farmers go around making sure they get their seeds in the ground the right direction? <laughs> oh, Lord! Turn it upside down. The root comes out first, does a 180, and goes straight down. The shoot comes out, does a 180, goes straight up. That's our Father in heaven. Amen. I'm using a 60-year-old man with John 4:24, but I'm not amused. I'm thrilled because this is a picture of great multiplication. And I sent some of it to you in a recent update, so you should have been picking up on the fact that, yes, the pastor is worked up by John 4:24, Acorn math. So I have this little acorn here. And if we stick this little acorn underground, what is going to come up? An oak tree. Yep. An oak tree. Huge. Strong. Uncle Donald and Aunt Nancy sitting up here toward the front have these all over their yard. And they can testify to the fact that even when they're very small, they're pretty strong because it's a harbinger of what's coming. The root system goes down a long ways and it's going to sprout into a tall oak tree with huge branches and, and wood to heat homes. It's an incredible thing. But then that oak tree, how many acorns does it have a year? 10,000 on average, a typical oak tree. They have mast years, but don't, let's not make it complicated. There is a cycle in oak trees that God put in them. Go read about it. He's magnificent. 10,000 acorns from one acorn. But that's every year. And if it lives 100 years, that's a short-term oak. But if it lives 100 years, you've got 100 times 10,000, which is a million a million from this little guy just stick him underground that's what jesus is saying yep. now a wheat wheat multiplies 200 times corn multiplies 800 rice does 2000 but an oak an acorn does 10000 a year and just keeps repeating that's precious except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die it abideth alone but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And Jesus said this in context with these words, the hour is come. I have been delivered out of Jerusalem repeatedly. I have been delivered out of the hands of the Jews in Galilee and down here in Judea. But now the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I'm going to be put in the ground 
but there is going to be much fruit and it's going to include those Gentiles that you're reluctant to talk to and that I've kept you from preaching to for the last three and a half years. And they turned the world upside down. And here we are, a Gentile congregation because of John 4, 24. And we get to remember his death till he comes for us. It requires moisture and warmth to dissolve and begin the germination of a new plant. As seeds imbibe the water in the soil, they expand and enzymes and food supplies are hydrated. Hydrated enzymes become active and the seed increases its metabolic activities. It's Jesus picked it, or I wouldn't have studied it. It sends forth a root and a shoot, which reaches for sunlight for photosynthesis. Once the seedling emerges into light, it changes drastically by photomorphogenesis. Videos of this process are found on the internet showing creator-assigned direction inside those seeds. Beautiful. But let's get what our Lord wants. This seedling grows into the exact kind of plant that had before produced the seed. A kernel or seed of corn, here called a corn of corn. Okay, Let's be thinking about corn. Let's be thinking about Iowa. And a corn of corn, that means a seed of corn will produce a full corn plant. A typical Iowa field corn plant will be more than 10 feet tall with roots seven feet down. And they'll do it every year, and they'll do it in just a few months. Jesus, by his death, guaranteed many more to be conformed to his glorious image by dying for us. And this is how he wanted us to remember it for this Lord's Supper. I believe in the timing of the Lord. We... The Lord led us to the Gospel of John. The Lord held us up last week. You know the circumstances. Here we are. I want to get to 31 and 32. The Lord said, I've got something better for you on your way there. And it's verse 24. Can you embrace verse 24 and understand that Jesus Christ, when put in the ground after his death on the cross for us, came forth out of that grave and brought millions more out of all tribes, tongues, people, and languages, and nations of the earth for a multitude that no man can number. So the math breaks down. If no man can number it, we just know that the Lord has saved a great host that is the family of God and will be in heaven with him. And he did it by his death. And so he's telling the apostles two things. One, Do not keep me from dying. Peter tried to do that on more than one occasion. He tried it in Matthew 16. Lord, be that far from thee. He tried it in Gethsemane by cutting the ear of Melchmas off with his sword. Number one, I have to die. Don't keep me from death. Embrace my death. And we're going to embrace it right now. We're going to celebrate it. Two, it's going to bring in fruit the likes of which you have never seen by the Gentiles. And here we are, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away from the Middle East. Here we are. We sang, crown him with many crowns. Who were we singing about? The one that the inhabitants of Jerusalem said, who is this? We know him. He's revealed himself to us. He has saved us by his death on the cross. And he has saved a multitude of Gentiles to be with him in heaven. The much fruit here is the many souls that would result from his one body being in the grave. The apostles could only see the mustard seed resemblance of his kingdom. 
And you can come up and look at these mustard seeds to see how small they are. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven right now looks like a mustard seed. It's very small. But you plant this thing and it grows into a huge thing that the birds of the air come and nest in it and rest in its branches. And, the, and here we are today. The mustard seed grows into a bush or tree that is 30 by 30 and a very great bush tree. There's a multitude in heaven that no man can number by his death that the Bible tells us about. The apostles in their lives turned the world upside down with Gentile conversions. The prophet asked in Isaiah 53, who shall declare his generation? He was cut off. Is he going to have a progeny? I've preached this to you before. Isaiah asked, who shall declare his generation? He was cut off in the prime of life. He has no descendants. He has millions of descendants. And we are them, part of them. Thank you, Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and for you to have another verse to delight in and to embrace and to see the beauty of it telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us.